0: Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 U.S. election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Happy Friday, and welcome to the final weekend before the election. In just a few minutes, I'll be sharing the second half of our two-part series, The Choice, breaking down the very different lives and experiences of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But first, I just want to give you a quick pep talk. I know that a lot of you are feeling stressed out about this election. Not going to lie, I'm feeling that stress myself. Um, Even though the polls say that Joe Biden has about an 8.9% lead nationally, and he's ahead, although by smaller margins in the key swing states, um, I know that it can be a really anxious time, especially considering what all of us collectively lived through in uh, 2016. Um, So far this year, we've seen an unprecedented turnout in the early vote, which seems like good news overall for Democrats. Um, Increases to early voting and postal voting opportunities may be driving up our overall turnout numbers, not just shifting our vote earlier. In Texas, for example, more people have already voted than voted in the entire 2016 election. As a general rule, and I think it still holds true, more people voting is good for Democrats. It's certainly good for Democrats. On the other hand, just last week, Republicans were able to rush through the Supreme Court nomination of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett, securing a 6-3, I would say, not just conservative, but far right majority on the court. Immediately before Barrett was confirmed, a 5-4 majority issued a ruling based on what many have said is some dubious legal reasoning, stating that Wisconsin ballots that that are received after election day should not be counted. Uh, Let me say one thing very, very clearly. The rules of this election are very much in dispute. If you are able to do so, and if you haven't already submitted your ballot, please do not put your ballot in the post at this point. Bring it along to your election center and hand it in personally. The Postal Service is saying that ballots that are posted by this point definitely won't, they cannot be guaranteed to to be received in time for the election. And even if your state has a relatively um, relaxed deadline about allowing ballots to uh, arrive after election day, as many, in fact, most states do, I would strongly encourage you to do everything in your power to make sure that your ballot is in the hands of your election officials before election day, both in case of any Late, late, changes imposed by the court, but also just so that your ballot will be counted in the earliest possible election count from this election. We just don't want there to be any confusion about the intention that you have in casting your vote. In these final few days, I want to ask you to do one more thing for me. One more thing. What that thing is, that's up to you. But whatever you were planning to do this weekend, please do one more. If you didn't have any plans to do anything election-related this weekend, please just do one thing. Anything. Call a friend and encourage them to vote. Join a phone bank and help us with our last-minute GOTV push. If you are in a place where it's safe to do so, join a neighborhood canvas, go door-to-door, and talk to voters. If you were already planning on doing these things, please just do one more of them. One more hour of phone banking one more donation to a candidate or a cause that you support um, I might want to point you in the direction of democracy docket right now which is doing a lot of fantastic work on these legal challenges um, to secure and widen access to the to the ballot and to make sure that all of all the votes will be counted whatever you do any one extra thing that you can do you'll feel so much better for it you'll feel so much better for it as soon as you do it and looking back no matter what the outcome of this election is I guarantee Guarantee you, you will feel better for whatever you can do. We are almost there. Just a few days to go. Just get through that final hurdle, and and all shall be well. Um, One final thing I want to say, Um, if you have plans for, if you don't have plans for election night, um, or indeed even if you do have plans, but you're looking for um, something else to check in on from time to time, I will be hosting along with uh, a a few friends, a live chat on a Discord server. Um, I will put the link to that Discord server um, in the show notes for this episode. And I will also pin them to the top of my Twitter feed at KarenJR. You are all very welcome to join us. Um, any any listener of this podcast is a friend and family and invited and welcome to join us on that Discord server. Um, it's going to be a place where we capture just our live chat conversation, a private conversation, and a place for us to to chat about election returns as they come in. I realize it may not be um, just a few hours; it could be, you know, even potentially days and weeks. But certainly, at the at the very least, that conversation will be lively um, overnight as the election returns come in. And I certainly invite you to join us there. And now, um, I'd like to go on now with part two of our very special episode uh, series, running down the biographies of these two very different men of the same generation. When we last left you um, last week, Skylar had just told us about Trump's early 90s business failures. At the start of this episode, I pick up with a discussion of the shared problem these two men had with asbestos removal enjoy Do you know the uh, there there is an asbestos connection between Donald Trump and Joe Biden <laughs> No. Yes, randomly. Um obviously Joe Biden is not a real estate tycoon, but he has made a number of big home purchases for his family over the years. One of which was he, you know, very early in his Senate career, he bought an old abandoned decrepit mansion way, way more than he could afford at the time, but but we're still talking about like $200,000, right, which is not you know um so and he and it was falling to pieces and he spent many years like personally rebuilding and revamping redesigning that uh that that mansion with really big ambitious plans for what he was going to do with it and one of the things he had to do was because there was asbestos in the basement he physically personally had to like donot don up some gloves and uh, gloves and kit and go down to physically remove the asbestos before he could get any workers in to to do anything to it. So, yeah, he was very wow. involved with that project, which is a little different than Donald Trump's approach to asbestos removal.
1: <laughs> and he had gloves, which sounds like might have been more uh personal protective equipment than Trump's yeah. workers had. I
0: was going to say, an early sign of Biden's uh, Biden's adherence to mask wearing and. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but anyway, so we're going to leap forward now uh, from 1991 to 2008, another um, interesting kind of milestone year. And I think we can cover this one pretty quickly from a a Biden point of view, at least, um, and and get up to speed with where Trump's been in these years. Um, Since 1991... Biden has been carrying on um just basically keep it on keep it on in the Senate you know he's he's accruing um you know he continues to accrue power in the Senate he he takes on important roles on foreign policy um and uh you know he he famously well controversially votes in favor of approving the Iraq war, but has a very detailed criticism of the Bush administration's handling of it. Um, famously has a recommendation about um, post-war, about um, how uh, it, it might be, um, the the nation of Iraq might be divided into kind of different, different administrative zones, all kinds of stuff in the weeds of foreign policy, which is kind of Joe, Joe, one of Joe Biden's areas of specialty at that point. Um, as I mentioned before, he he writes the 1994 Violence Against Women Act, which is a, a really signature piece of legislation that becomes um, becomes something he touches back on again and again. It's probably his his biggest, um, you know, personal um, achievement from a legislative point of view outside of his committee work on the judiciary and foreign policy committees. Um, he writes a, a book, a, a biography of himself called Promises to Keep which I quite like because it refers to the Robert Frost poem, uh, uh, I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And then in 2008, for the second time in his career, um, 20 years after the first time, or wait, 30 years, 1988, 98, yeah, 2008. 20 years after 20 years. the first time, he decides to run for president. Now, in 1988, Joe Biden was a was a front runner early on in that race and was kind of doing okay. well at the polls early up. He uh, never really manages to break into the 2008 primary field, which quickly narrows down to a race between Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton and John Edwards, um, who at that time was was kind of a clear third position. Um, although I you know, have to say, having having watched that race very closely, very closely, he did pretty well in a lot of the primary debates in that uh, in that In in that cycle um, and kind of put himself across perfectly credibly, but just never really catches fire. Um, But there is an important moment that happens uh, in one of the primary debates from that election that I think really is very telling for what came after. Biden is famously just a gaff machine, right? He he, he has this tendency to just you mangle his words, uh, and whether that's to do with his stutter from when he was a child and his kind of more more possibly his like efforts to talk himself around his stutter which means that he sometimes says the wrong things or sometimes relies on um on memory too much which might have been what led to some of his plagiarism problems before he just stumbles on his words a lot and um one of the things that he said during that campaign that got him in trouble was he's describing obama and he described him as articulate and clean <laughs> um And he was trying to be really praiseworthy of Barack Obama as his Senate colleague and and friend, but it just came across really insensitive and inappropriate. Um, But, you know, but it was just like, he was just, just words came out wrong. But there was this really interesting (laughs) moment, there was this really interesting moment in the debate, in one of the primary debates, where Biden is asked about this by the moderator, and he just says, look, you know... (sighs) Sometimes, and sometimes, you know, he just kind of says, look, sometimes things come out wrong. But, you know, I hope that people know, you know, my career has been spent standing up for minorities and um, all this kind of stuff. And then there's this really interesting moment where Barack Obama, who's the person being talked about, who's up right there on stage next to him, he intervenes and he says, can I just testify a little bit for Joe here? And he says, you know, Joe Biden his heart is good and he is, you know, he is a true friend. And like he, he, you know, kind of almost like he comes out there and endorses Biden as, you know, not racist. And it was this really interesting dynamic between the two of them where it was kind of like Obama was saying, um, I, you know, I see this guy. I know I see where he's coming from and like, I know his truth and, you know, um, and it was really interesting. And it kind of, I thought about it a lot. Later on, because, of course, famously, what happens later that year um, is that Obama, he's searching for a running mate, And, um, you know, there were lots of the, the Obama campaign was was famously very good at keeping secrets if they wanted to keep them secret. So they conducted a vigorous VP search and they were very careful about how they interviewed people and how they would conduct this search. Um, but it was known early on that that Biden was one of the people who was going to be on that list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really lovely story. Alyssa Mastrobonico, who was running the Obama administration VP search at that time, um, a, a, an Obama later admi- administration staffer and current podcaster. So big shout out to the podcasters. She, in her um, in her Pod Save America series about the vice presidency, talks about... Um, the process that they went through to try and keep the candidates identities under cover when they were interviewing them and she talks about how she would she she would tell all the people when they came in they would kind of it was an elaborate system of like they'd be ushered in the the front door or the back door and around and they would like, Try and be careful about which airports people came in, of, into and out of and try to, to not have them fly commercial. But if they were flying private, they'd go to a different, like they took so many efforts. And they would said to all the candidates, all the people who were being interviewed, when you come in for your interview, try not to look like yourself, right? Like, just try to be a little incognito. And she said, when Joe Biden walked in the door for his interview, he was there. He was wearing his aviator glasses. He had like he looked like Joe Biden of the memes. And she said to him, like, Joe, what are you doing? And he's like, What? What? I'm in disguise. I got my sunglasses on. <laughs> and she's so funny about how it's like he just he can't be anything other than what he is. Like he just like, he genuinely thought he was following the rules, but like you know, this is just who I am. I'm out here, you know, and he's uh, he's doing his thing. Um, so in the end, of course, um, as we all know, um, Biden was Obama's pick for VP and David Axelrod and David Pluff, the two, um, the two Obama campaign, uh, staffers, eventually the leads of the Obama campaign campaign manager and communications director or whatever their titles were, the, the, the big guys, the guys who were really <laughs> running the campaign, um, they were really interesting. They had a, I listened to a conversation between the two of them where they said, that their conversation with um with Obama about Biden was he was deciding between Obama and Evan By, another senator at the time. And um that that Obama's take on it was that Biden that that Evan Bay would be a reliable partner. Like he would do what he was told to do, and he would, and he felt that Bay would probably not screw it up, but that he felt that Biden probably would screw things up but that he had the potential to be great in a way that Bai didn't. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. So he said, you know, Obama's take was that like, Biden wears his heart on his sleeve. He tries harder and therefore he might make more mistakes. But he, Obama decided that he would rather have somebody who's leaving it all out there in the field is the way he said it. You know, somebody who's really, um, you know, who's 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 willing to make mistakes in the service of 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 doing more and pushing further. Whereas he felt like by in comparison was a little bit more careful and cautious. And so oh, you know, but Joe Biden became a Barack Obama's running mate in 2008, um, an extraordinary political campaign. Um, and pretty early on, you could see that, again, like these two men got on really well, their friendship and their, um, their partnership worked really well. But it was very clear that, you know, Obama was this like media superstar and, you know, Ob- and Biden just, you know, he's a little more awkward. Like he's a good guy, but he's a little more awkward. I remember there was a, an announcement video that they put together where the staff, the campaign staff who'd been working for with Obama for a while by this point, um, they had got used and they talked a little bit about the fact that they'd got used to Obama just kind of doing everything in one take, right? Like, cause he was just really media savvy and really polished. Mm -hmm. So he would come on and he would do his, you know, uh, you know, here's my two minute meeting scripted video and he would do it in one take and then he'd be off or whatever. And they tried to do this video with Obama and Biden together, and like it came out really well in the end. But they were like, We had to do 20 takes because Biden had to keep doing it over and <laughs> couldn't get his marks. Like, he's not an actor, right? It's just that's not how he is. He's uh, uh, you know, he stumbles over his words, but um, but what was uh, was a real asset to him on the campaign trail, and as we'll talk about shortly, when we do a quick segment on the on the 2020, um, I think he turned out to be a really true partner in office uh, in the way that it was exactly what Obama was looking for. So, um, you know, he was brought on in part because um, of all the things I've just talked about, but also because he had really good relations within the Senate, um, both very, very good relations within the Democratic Party and across the aisle. And I mean, I think there's things like you know, uh, 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 Biden. Biden has friendships in the Senate that might be surprising, like you wouldn't expect. Famously, of course, he was very close friends with uh, John McCain, who was uh, o- Obama's running was was Obama's op- opponent in that race, and uh, and therefore, when he did his vice presidential debate against Sarah Palin, of course. Um, <laughs> He had this really interesting tone to it, which is like, you know, and and SNL satirized this. The SNL joke about this was like, John McCain is my closest friend and he's a dangerous lunatic who should never be. be But there's this real dynamic of like, I love John McCain. John McCain is a good friend of mine. He should never be president. right? Um, But it kind of played out really well. It kind of worked because, you know, Biden could Biden could just say, look, you know, I, I know these guys. I know these people. I know John McCain. I'm not trusting his heart or his integrity, but I'm just saying Barack's the guy that you want. The guy, the guy you want. So um, that was really interesting. And of course, I think also that that vice presidential debate against Sarah Palin was was also very interesting because Joe Biden was facing the challenge of being a, let's face it, old white guy. Um, who had to face off in a debate against a a younger female um, opponent. And there was a lot of concern about whether he was going to appear dismissive, whether his extensive experience in the Senate would make him look, you know, cause him to be arrogant or condescending to her. And I think, you know, that actual debate, you know, Sarah Palin is what she is. I think Obama, uh, so Biden managed to avoid some of the worst mistakes that he could have made in that debate and actually was was widely credited as having won it. Um, and also carefully, I think, avoided falling into the trap of of um, appearing to be overstepping his bounds. And I, I often wonder if, again, as we've talked about the lessons that he learned from the Anita Hill hearing and his later work on violence against women, um, he seems to have given a lot of thought to um, how to treat women and how, um, how women in office um, should be handled. And so, you know, and that became a major theme later on of, um, of his partnership with Obama and the presidency. And they did a lot of work on preventing sexual violence and so forth. So, yeah, so that, that was, uh, that was Biden's 2008, an exciting year.
1: <laughs> it was, it was an exciting year for him and for me. Uh, it was and for insane. all of us. It
0: was a great year yeah. for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got to
0: work on um, that campaign and it was just glorious.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, I remember um, watching the 2008 convention and feeling more hopeful than I think I had ever felt about the future. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that was Obama, but part of that was Biden. You know, there's just a relentless optimism about Joe Biden that yeah. uh, is really quite remarkable, considering everything that he has suffered in his life, you know, personally. Uh, so yeah, it I mean, sort I of like, shows
0: through. I, I feel like they're linked. I feel like he's an optimist because he's been through the worst and he's seen that you can come out of it. Do you know what I mean? There's something of, of Biden, which, which Trump doesn't have. Trump has this massive well of insecurities, whereas Biden is just like, look, whatever you've got to throw at me, it can't be worse than what I've seen. <laughs> like, I, I'm fine.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's a, an excellent sort of comparison is that, that Biden, you know, really just sort of picks himself up after being knocked down and keeps going, whereas Donald Trump wallows in self-pity. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which is how he spent most of the 1990s. Um, (laughs) You know, the 1990s were not kind to Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, You know, they he had a string of business failures that tarnished his image. Um, uh, The New Yorker wrote last year that uh, by 2003, he had become a garish figure of local interest, uh, a sort of punchline in page six um i don't know that i think that it's necessarily that bad um you know he was still sort of seen as this icon of new york in his own right he did a a guest spot you know just a cameo um in uh, an early episode of sex in the city sort of when it was at its cultural zeitgeist uh i'd forgotten that yeah well you know it's funny i actually didn't find that for research, I just happened to be watching Sex and the City like I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And there he was. And I was like, oh yeah, he was in this.
0: But well, he, he did have, a lot of things. Yeah, he should have been pop culture a bunch, didn't he? Like He, was he really in did. 2, lost in New York. There, I was mean, a, there was a Simpsons episode that featured yes. him as
1: president. My god. Yeah. <laughs> um, and throughout the 1990s, he really remains sort of this pop culture icon, if not as... You know, the pinnacle of wealth and success that he was in the 1980s, certainly still of uh, of New York. You know, he's up there with the Statue of Liberty in in that regard. You know, he's very much seen as this icon of a certain type of brash, ruthless New Yorker um, and um, somebody with just boundless self-confidence. Um Daniel Radcliffe, the actor who played Harry Potter, actually relates a really interesting story that in like 2001, I think it was, he was doing the Today Show for the first time. Daniel Radcliffe's a little boy. He's no older than 10 or 11 at this point. And um, he meets Donald Trump. And, you know, Donald Trump asks him, you know, how are you doing? And Daniel Radcliffe, this little boy, says, I'm nervous. And he says, you just tell them you met Mr. Trump. (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that's just you know Daniel rackford tells this story you know years later, and he's like, I'm just you know that is like the Everest of Mount uh, of self confidence is how he puts it, and that really sort of sums up Donald Trump, you know everything is about him. You know, go on the show and talk about meeting me. Like, and this is after all of his business setbacks. So I love that anecdote because I think nothing just sort of encapsulates Donald Trump's worldview as much of that. Like he, I I aspire to have as much self confidence as Donald Trump. Wow. Um, (laughs) How is that helpful advice to a nervous child, though? (laughs) I, you know, (laughs) (laughs) what I. it's not. But <laughs> um, but in 2008, you know, the, the 90s were bad for Trump. But 2008, 2009, that era was great for him because that boundless sort of self-confidence helps him rebound. And he kind of uh, pivots away from real estate. Um, we do know that um, you know, there were other real estate ventures that did succeed. you know, he's presenting at the Emmys with, uh, you know, I, I can't remember which actress it was. I want to say Kim Cattrall, but it might have been someone else. Um, you know it, 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 he's he's mixing in these celebrity circles that he always wanted to mix in um, and and he's really become a full-fledged television star. He receives uh, his own star on The Hollywood Walk of Fame um and it's interesting because Donald Trump almost didn't do it he didn't he wasn't interested in doing reality tv he said that it was for quote-unquote bottom feeders Mm. um he's not Mark Burnett convinced him to do it (laughs) um Mark Burnett of course had produced Survivor um which was a massive show in the early 2000s So yeah, Mark Burnett had produced Survivor uh, in the early 2000s. That show was a massive hit and The Apprentice proved to be a massive hit as well. Um, Mark Burnett actually tells this really interesting story about the first time he met Trump. Um, Trump owns an ice skating rink in New York City Um, or at least he did at the time. I'm not sure if he still owns it. And uh, he just knew immediately that he had to flatter Donald. So the, the skating rink is called I can't remember the exact name of it. It starts like the Warren Rink or something. That's not it, but we'll say it is. But Mark Burnett made the very shrewd, calculated move to call it the Trump Warren Rink, the Trump (laughs) Warren. And and it just ingratiated himself to a point to where Donald Trump trusted Mark Burnett enough to do the reality show. And it worked out well for both of them. I mean, they both made multiple millions of dollars off of the show. Um, And the show sort of sold Donald Trump as this really successful businessmen which of course he wasn't at that point he had had a string of bankruptcies throughout the 90s his personal life was in tatters um and uh they sort of a lot of the people on the show sort of thought americans would be in on the joke that that, that this was sort of you know done a little tongue-in-cheek that donald trump was not uh this great tycoon that they were pretending he was but if you watch back episodes now and if you watched at the time, it certainly didn't. It came across very earnest that Donald Trump was being portrayed, you know, intentionally as this great businessman, that there was no sort of sarcasm to it, that it was very, very matter of fact. Um, and part of that was down to the editing. They selectively edited how Trump came. And, um, Jonathan Braun was a an editor on that show, and he has said that Trump had little grasp of who performed well, and so he would fire candidates who did very successfully, Yeah, um, just on a whim. You yeah. know, he would fire them. He would maybe decide he didn't like the whatever they were wearing or whatever, fire them, and so the show would have to go back and edit it to make that candidate. Um, they purposely shot Donald Trump. You know, there were other things that they did to sort of bolster his image. They shot him from below like he was a basketball star um they choreographed his entrances um they edited it out so that his sentences were coherent because (laughs) i mean we've all seen him talk i mean you know imagine just 300 hours of footage of, of, of donald trump talking as he does you know now so um they they really edited it to put him in his best light and they recreated the myth that Donald Trump himself had created in the 1980s of him as being the successful self-made businessman. And of course, that has never been true. One of the things in recent Wall Street, uh, the Trump International Hotel in Chicago, um, you know, Mar-a-Lago continued Bedminster, other golf resorts. um, So he sort of switches to more luxury branding. Um, but what really takes him over the edge is, and into the stratosphere, is a little known show called The Apprentice.
0: No, oh, I think I've vaguely heard of it.
1: Yeah. Um, Donald Trump would not be president of the United States if it weren't for The Apprentice. And there's just no getting around it. It is an absolutely pivotal moment in not only his career but now the history of the nation um and the apprentice is a really interesting uh show so in 2008 um celebrity apprentice premieres um and and of why we chose this as uh, a sort of pivot point for Donald Trump is that you know the apprentice is writing high in the ratings you've got the celebrity apprentice going on what's interesting is that part of the reason the celebrity apprentice came about is because the sort of luster of the apprentice as a concept wore pretty thin pretty quick um and so the celebrity edition sort of added some new you know energy into the series um but uh the apprentice brought Donald Trump back to mainstream attention and indeed took him from like being this little D list or C list celebrity to really be you know, we had gone through the national trauma of nine 11. Um, then we were involved in the Iraq war, which, uh, divided the country and then turned out to be sort of a disaster. Um, and America really wanted to believe that, um, you know, things could be good again that things could be gold golden again you know they wanted to believe that uh, americans could succeed because america was really struggling you know in 2004 when the show premiered and in 2004 like donald trump gave them an answer which is here is what america is here's american strength here's american power here's american money and finance and and the american dream realized and That sort of plays into a lot of what happened with The Apprentice. Um, And it just struck a nerve and it stuck around for years. I mean, it it morphed into a celebrity version in 2008, I believe. But Donald Trump remained on TV for for over a decade. And so his
0: most of his income at this point is now coming from the show, isn't it? Rather than from his business investments at that time.
1: Well, Um, I I don't know if I would say most of it is. I don't know for sure, but a lot of it is. A lot of it is also coming from things that he has branded. He he himself stopped producing things. Yeah, Yeah, he licensed his name. So there was Trump vodka. There was Trump steaks. There was Trump Airlines. There was Trump magazine. There was Trump University, which, of course, ended up in lawsuits, uh, you know, in litigation over allegations that it was fraud and that it was a, a scheme. And, you know, so some of these didn't work out as well. But Trump licensed his name rather than uh making his own products or developing real estate which is how he had sort of become known um he also invested in beauty pageants um you know which were you know like the miss miss usa pageant miss universe um and so he made some money off of those and those will become very important in the 20 teens when uh donald trump goes to russia
0: right should we skip forward to, tw- to, to 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 today and just catch up with what's happened to these men between 2008 and 2020?
1: Yeah. I don't think a whole lot has happened since then.
0: No. <laughs> <Yeah>, I mean, <laughs> it's been a sleepy time for both of them. <laughs> um, yeah. So 20, so here we are today. Um, Joe Biden is the nominee to be president of the United States, the third time, of course, that he's run for president. And compared to the previous two times where he just didn't seem to have any luck, like things didn't catch fire in this round, I mean, he's been in lead for a couple years now right like since before he even entered the primary he was favored to take the nomination and has been steadily ahead in head-to-head polls against Donald Trump um since since he won the since he won the primary and long before um so there's a there's a real sense in which he's just within grasp of what has been his lifelong dream um I have a little note here I, I tweeted it out, um, but but there's a a story from way back earlier in Biden's life when he uh, he first meets his the woman who's going to become his mother-in-law when he was about 20 years old, still in college, he meets Neelia's Neelia Hunter's mother, and she says, you know, what are your you know what are your plans? What are your plans in life? And he says, uh, oh, I'm going to be president. And she looks confused, and he says, oh, sorry, of the United States, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> And here it is, what two thousand twenty. So quite a long way after that. Um, and knock on wood. Knock, knock on, on wood, but he is he is close. He is certainly closer. By far than he has ever come to that dream, um, but and and the way that he got here, the the reason he's where he is is partly because um, he's perceived by the American public as being a very electable candidate. That's why um, he won the Democratic primary, and one of the reasons he's perceived as being an elector very electable candidate is not just because of his long career in the Senate, but perhaps more so because of his time as Vice President and the universal fame and name recognition that he. Acqu- in that process. So just like Donald Trump had a, a, a reinvigoration of his reputation late in his career, so did Joe Biden, right? Who who became uh-huh. the Joe Biden of legend really in his career as as, as Barack Obama's vice president. Um, and a lot of important things happened to, um, to his, his, his vision of himself and the country's vision of him at that time. Um, of course. Famously, the big thing that happened to um to the Obama administration, the big thing that they took on um early on was the was the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare. And um, you know, as with all the major moments in in Obama's presidency, Biden was was heavily involved in that. Most, most notably, he was using all of his contacts and connections with his friends in the senate to try and help navigate through that process and so he was running point in the senate um he was he was kind of serving as a personal advisor to the president but also to the senate leadership and trying to navigate a lot of that and of course famously on the day it was passed um he uh, he made it, it became a bit of a a meme himself by um, being overheard on the mic as saying it's a big fucking deal, <laughs> um, which is just again that's such a Biden moment there, right? Because it was technically a gaff, but it was a gaff in the right direction. Right? <laughs> um, he got picked up by a mic, but I mean I think it was uh, it was for 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 Biden, somebody who's been. You know, a, a prominent Democrat for, for decades. I mean, he was aware of the historic significance of what happened when Obamacare was passed. Um, he knew uh-huh. he, he watched many previous attempts to try and to try and get healthcare reform passed through. Um, so, you know, that was a really big moment. Um, another big Biden moment during the Obama presidency was was in 2012. When, again, in a very classic Biden move, another gaffe seems to have accelerated at least the change of the Obama administration's policy on same-sex marriage. Um he gave an interview in which um, he he came out much stronger than I suspect he intended to, of saying that, you know, he's been thinking about it a lot and he's completely comfortable with the idea that any two people who love each other should be able to get married. And that, you know, although he doesn't set policy for the administration, he doesn't, you know, the more he thinks about it, the more he thinks there isn't really a good argument against it, basically, is what he was saying. And that, you know, love is love and all these kinds of things. And I think at that time... You know, one suspects that Barack Obama probably was right with him, if not ahead of him. Um, and you know, in in his thinking about that. But the, the time the Obama administration was trying to be careful about not getting too far ahead of public opinion on this question, and I think they were signaling that they were going to evolve their thinking quite rapidly. But Biden was way. <laughs> Biden just gave that interview, and then the Obama administration well, was like, "Oh, all right, then." <laughs>
1: I actually remember at the time that reading stories that suggested that um, Obama was going to be giving an interview, I believe on on the view. Yeah. um, And he was going to use his, use the view as a platform to come out and say he now supported same sex marriage and that Joe Biden beat him to (laughs) do it. And that it it was, yeah, it it caused a little bit of a a, a kerfuffle, (laughs) I guess, among them because it's like, damn it, Joe, we were going to do this. Damn like the president <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Um, I, I think
0: that's right. But I think, I think it's one of those, it might be one of those glorious mistakes um, because I think you're right that the Obama administration had a plan for how they were going to start to um, change the president's mind on this issue. Um, but, but I think in some ways it was actually kind of nice that it was Biden who went first because I think Biden being a Catholic being of an older generation, Mm -hmm. Um, Biden coming from, you know, a different upbringing, Biden being kind of not so urban in his outlook in general. Um, I think, I think it was really interesting to have Joe Biden be the first prominent person in the administration to take that point of view, because it felt like it in a weird sort of way it felt like it defanged the issue um and and even the fact that it was kind of kind of awkward and, and kind of gaffy rather than rather than a smooth communication it felt like an authentic it just felt like yes when your mind changes it doesn't necessarily change in a smooth way so i thought it was really interesting um as a, way of coming, as a way of coming out, <laughs> <laughs> bringing the administration out of the closet on their, I suspect, probably longstanding support for gay marriage, but just waiting for the right moment to do it. Um, but it wasn't all sunshine and light in the Obama administration uh, for Biden. Um, of course, in 2015, probably the, the most important thing uh, that happened to him during Obama's presidency happened, which is that his son... Bo Biden um, tragically died of brain cancer. Um, Bo Biden was the, um, you know, the oldest son of, of the Biden family um, died, you know, of very accelerated, rapidly moving cancer. And I think it's fair to say Joe, Bo Biden was a, was perceived by Joe Biden, amongst many other people, I think, as probably the political legacy that Biden would leave behind because he was moving up rapidly in Democratic Party circles. He was um, a successful attorney general, state attorney general. Um, And as much as as well as causing, of course, deep grief and, and sorrow for the entire Biden family in particularly, um, it seems to have sent his younger son, Hunter Biden, completely off the rails for a time. And um, I highly commend to you. There's a New Yorker article about Hunter Biden that was published um, in 2019 that covers sort of the story of Hunter's struggles at, at around this time in some detail and with like real honesty. Um, and Hunter cooperated with that story. It was clear the Biden campaign didn't want him to be caught out by the media recovering it. They wanted to get everything out there. Um, But, you know, he he suffered terrible, terrible terrible, trauma after his brother's death and and spiraled into addiction, depression, um, you know, just totally lost at sea and that that whole family situation that was happening with with joe biden at the time um was was behind the scenes of what was going on in the final couple years of the administration um as um as biden tried to consider what his future would be and he was at that time considering whether he would run in 2016 um and i think it's fair to say that obama gently encouraged him not to um because i think biden obama felt that joe biden was just not in a psychological space to to take on the rigors of a presidential campaign which is probably true uh, in 2016 um he was just suffering terrible grief and his family was having a, a real um real trauma and you know this is a man who knows from trauma, but uh, it's just not not getting a break. You know, it's just horrible to contemplate what he's had to suffer through. Um, and so, you know, Biden made the decision, the very difficult decision with the support of his family and his friends and and his friend in the White House, um, Obama, who, who seems to have made himself very available to Biden for this conversation, that he would not run for office. And as a result, um, he stepped aside. Hillary Clinton won the nomination. I I'm trying to remember how that turned out, but I feel like, yeah, something happened there in the end. Um I can't remember if she won or
1: not. Um, but... um I might have something I might have some information on that.
0: Oh do you? Okay. Well we'll come <laughs> back to that in a sec. Yeah. I might <laughs> um, have and then and then so i think there was a a little moment in january immediate very very shortly before the inauguration um of 27 of 2017 uh, uh sorry no january of 20 january of 2016 obama um gave Joe Biden the presidential medal of freedom in a in a kind of surprise ceremony um and i think it was very much intended at that time that 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 would be his valedictory address to the american people that you know what obama and it had in mind in that surprise ceremony was probably that that this would be um, undignified and, and honorable way to see his friend out of public life mm-hmm. um, and that probably is what, what Biden had in mind that you know he would he would become an ex-VP and um, you know probably work for charities or, or do whatever but then that is not the way that history went <laughs> and here we are today
1: Here we are
0: How did Donald Trump get here? This is the question I ask myself all the time <laughs> How did Donald Trump arrive at where he is in
1: 2020, Skylar? Well, um, there's a lot to go over. um, And I wasn't sure quite how to organize it. But I think I'm going to start with a little uh, little game I like to call uh, 2009. And I'm going to ask... What important Trump milestone happened in March 2009? Because, of course, Biden was inaugurated as vice president in January of that year. Mm -hmm. But a very, very important uh, moment happened in Trump's life in March of 2009 um, that would change the course of American history. What was it?
0: Oh, 2009. I don't know. Tell me.
1: Donald Trump joined Twitter. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Damn it. In March 2009, Donald Trump joined Twitter. Uh, His first tweet was to promote an appearance on, I believe, the David Letterman show, uh, which was, of course, uh, to promote uh, his show, The Apprentice. Um, Twitter proved to be very, very lucrative for Donald Trump. It gave him a way to express his every thought to the American people. And from very early on, the American people seemed to like what Donald Trump was saying, um, or at least being unable to- Some of them. Yeah, I mean, the thing about donald trump that has been true since really early on in his uh career as a real estate developer in manhattan i mean we're going back to the 1970s now is that donald trump loves attention donald trump loves press coverage donald trump has had employees who are responsible for uh curating all of the press clippings about him and presenting them to him so that he can read about himself um that is absolutely true donald trump loves attention and twitter and social media uh, but twitter especially gave him a way to be able to say whatever he wanted without having to go through the filter of um you know the media you know in the past to get the the word out that donald trump wanted he had to sort of invent personas you know and i'm not sort of making you know a joke here he literally invented personas pretended to be other people and would call media outlets to spread good news about himself you know (laughs) sort of working as his own publicist that's literally something that he did now he didn't have to do that he could just he could say to the world what he wanted to say unfiltered um and uh in 2011 what he wanted to say was that the president was born in kenya um that was of course president obama um trump never actually as far as i can remember and as far as i've seen said specifically that barack obama was not born in the united states he was just asking the question um why did why did he ask that question though why did birtherism become something that became an obsession for donald trump i tried to find the answer to that and i can't um i don't think anyone definitively knows uh why this issue caught his attention um i think that you know and i'm sort of editorializing a little here clear about that but i think that it's important to sort of consider the question of why birtherism really became something that donald trump was known for because i mean this was not a man who um shied away from controversy but he had never sort of so publicly and so wholly embraced a conspiracy theory like this before and i think that Racism was part of it, no doubt. I think that there is, uh, you know, evidence throughout Donald Trump's life of racial animus toward African Americans. I think that's part of it. Um, I also think that um, he made the comment Probably out of a little bit of disdain for Obama. Obama was very, you know, well respected. He had an Ivy League education. He was very successful. Donald Trump has always been someone who either wants to coddle up to other successful people or he just wants to tear them down. For whatever reason, I think he chose to tear Obama down. Um, so he made the sort of birther statement, um, you know, asking the question. And then it garnered a lot of right-wing Coverage. It garnered a lot of media coverage because Donald Trump was somebody who, you know, was on The Apprentice. He was a big reality TV star and he's sort of bringing this conspiracy theory into the mainstream. And Donald Trump liked that he was making headlines. So he kept doing it because it was getting attention. Um, But I also think he sensed that this was where the Republican Party was heading. Um, Donald Trump was starting to think of running for office at the time and he was doing it not to become president. He had no interest in being president. He was doing it because he wanted to bolster his brand. The Apprentice was becoming a stagnant concept. Even the Celebrity Apprentice was kind of losing some ratings. Donald Trump might have been losing some cultural relevancy. He had done this once before. In 2000, he ran uh, for president as a Reform Party candidate. Uh, It was a very short-lived campaign, and everyone sort of assumed then, as they did in 2011 when he started to talk about running, that uh, it was really just to bolster his brand. Um, Somebody who would come to be very important to Donald Trump sort of kind of gently nudged him away from birtherism and said, look, if you're going to run for president, you're going to have to beat Barack Obama on the marriage. You you can't just sort of beat him with this conspiracy theory and that and that was a friend of his uh who you might have heard of called kellyanne conway (laughs) um and whatever it was donald trump decided not to run for president in 2012 um and instead he focused on projects outside of the apprentice um those included uh one in argentina Um, You know, Trump started to invest heavily in branding hotels and businesses. Uh, Ivanka took charge of one in uh, Azerbaijan, um, but uh, there were others throughout India and Russia and just all over the world. And one in uh, Argentina sticks out to me because uh, one of Trump's phone calls after he won the presidency was to the president of Argentina, Mauricio Macri. And Allegedly, according to an Argentine uh, broadcaster, the phone call involved Donald Trump um, asking for help in building an office tower in Buenos Aires. Uh, Both uh, Macri and Trump have denied this. But what's interesting about this is that these two men had a relationship prior to becoming world leaders. Um, They had both been businessmen in the 80s, and they tried to do a deal, and it didn't go through. And Donald Trump got very upset and, like, apparently broke Mochrie's golf clubs. Um, Mochrie was kidnapped in 1991. And apparently the animosity between these two men was so great that uh, Mochrie's father um, thought Donald Trump might have been behind the kidnapping. Huh. Uh, Now, he wasn't it was actually the Argentine federal police. (laughs) (laughs) But that's sort of an interesting, you know, I mean, Donald Trump had uh, a long history with with a lot of people around the world. And one of them uh, was a man called, and I hope I'm saying his name right, um, Amon Agalarov, Agalarov. Uh, You can Google it, it's A-G-A-L-A-R-O-V. Now, Eamon is uh, a young man. He's about Don Trump Jr.'s age. Um, He's a pop star, and he's very famous in Russia and Eastern Europe. And he filmed a video uh, with the Miss Universe uh, pageant. Uh, I think she was the winner of that pageant. He filmed it in Los Angeles, met Donald Trump, who owned the pageant, introduced him to his father, um, who is named Eris. Now, uh, met with Donald Trump in 2013, and to host uh, the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. This is when Trump starts to really sort of publicly become involved with Russians. Um, and he had a long history of, of involvement in Russia. Back in the 1980s, he talked about wanting to build a hotel across from the Kremlin. You know, I mean, this was, this was something that he had sort of long been interested in. Um, but the reason that the um, Agalarovs are interesting is that Eamon's publicist was a Brit uh, called Rob Goldstone. Now, Rob Golds, along with uh, Aris Agalarov, um, would end up being the ones who connected Donald Trump Jr. to um, the information uh, from Russia that we we found out about in the Steele dossier, um, if you remember that. Um, There's no evidence that that information was true, but this is what... You know, Donald Trump Jr. did take a meeting with Rod Goldstone and Aris Agalarov to get information on Hillary Clinton. Um... Going back to 2013, this is when <laughs> Trump goes to Russia and the Miss Universe pageant is held there. Allegedly, when the P tape is created. <laughs> um, if you don't know what that is, um, it is. <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is all very alleged, and everyone involved, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, everyone has denied it. Um, but it is said to be a tape of two prostitutes Donald Trump hired, um, uh, peeing on the bed that Barack and Michelle Obama had apparently slept in. You know, they were, Trump was in the same hotel room. How this tape came into existence is more interesting, I think, than the actual tape. And again, it's very important to acknowledge that there is no evidence that this tape actually exists. But the, the theory is that it's really hard to find information about Donald Trump's early life and part of that is because he himself has been so vague about it you know Mm. he doesn't want people to know that he came from wealth he wants to be seen as somebody who did it all himself and The Apprentice really helps solidify that in the minds of the American people um it, it it really is hard to overstate how big The Apprentice was in the 2000s. It came at a cultural moment when Americans wanted to feel good about America again, that Vladimir Putin and the FSB, which is Russia's state security agency uh, on Putin's orders, had wired the room so that they could survey it with uh, video and audio equipment. Uh, thus creating an incriminating tape of Donald Trump. Now, Putin has said this is ludicrous. They don't just, you know, Donald Trump was not a politician at the time. Why would they do that? Um, Other Russia analysts have said the FSB has done this to people who were less well-known than Donald Trump was in 2013, so it's entirely plausible. Either way, the reason I bring this up is that it plays into the hand of the Mueller investigation and the Russia investigation uh, sort of dominate the first half of Trump's presidency. Um, Whether this tape exists or not, I can't say, um, and I think it's really important to sort of say that factually, um, yep. that there's no evidence yep. that this tape does exist. Um, but it certainly entered the public consciousness in a very, very important way, and it really came to define, I think, the Trump presidency. Um, mm-hmm. Trump did one— want- Because
0: the thing is, I mean, we, we don't know if this, if this specific, specific tape exists, exists, but we do but know that close business relationships including financial relationships with various different russian oligarchs which is why the tape is at least possible if not plausible
1: right and i think that that's really what is the important information to take away from this is you know part of why i part of what was difficult about researching donald trump is there's just so much you know the man that's what trump spent a lot of his time working on though was building that international brand Um, in places like abaku which is in uh, azerbaijan and is considered this sort of failed hotel project they broke ground in 2008 in a really weird random part of downtown that had nothing going on for it Um, but there was so much damage in 2018 it looks like that's on hold but these business ventures continued even while donald trump was in the white house And then, you know, the Trump campaign, I I think everyone kind of remembers, you know, I think that, um, and that doesn't necessarily indicate, again, that there's anything nefarious going on. Um, I'm certainly not saying that, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that, especially in the 2000s and the 2010s, Trump really starts to broaden. The trump organization's influence and remit to include much more international business and those uh businesses did cause conflicts of interest um you know or at least they were afraid that they would cause conflicts of interest us authorities were very fearful of that um and so interests all over the world and the information can change rapidly so you know if you find an article from 2012 that says he has a 200 million dollar loan with the bank of china which he did Um, you know, six months later, that's not necessarily the case because of the way that and there's nothing nefarious about it. Uh, he had a $200,000 or $200 million mortgage or something like that with the Bank of China. And then like six months later, the Bank of China sells it on the secondary market. That happens a lot with mortgage backed securities. There's absolutely nothing. But when you're dealing with this sort of like high finance and, and these huge sums of money and these, uh, you know, multinational corporations, uh, Following the trail can be very, very difficult. I know it's actually, uh, on his political campaign, include the words, I mean, we all know. It's been a shit show. I uh, don't know what to say.
0: (laughs) Yeah, probably least said soon as, like, it's just, it's not been a nice time to live (laughs) through.
1: And I think, you know, we don't need to go into the outrages of the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency. I think Everyone listening kind of knows at this point. I think one thing that is considered, though, is why Donald Trump ran for president um, and maybe who influenced that decision. Um, I think it's definitely very clear that Donald Trump ran for president because he wanted to bolster his brand. As I said earlier, he had done Mm -hmm. this in 2000. Um, He actually told Andrew Neal, the the British journalist, uh, UK Listeners will, will know who that is immediately. Uh, but to American listeners, uh, Andrew Neal is a very, very famous. He also edits The Spectator, which is a right. Um, and he told Andrew Neal at Mar a Lago in 2015, which first of all just sort of threw me for a loop when I read that because I had no idea that Andrew Neal had ever gone to Mar a Lago. Um, but he said in 2015 that he was running to up his speaking fees because. Mm-hmm. Uh, He wanted to make more in speaking fees than Bill Clinton did. Mm. Um, Roger Ailes told Trump that if he wanted to start a news network and if he wanted to get into sort of the the right wing news business, he needed to run for president. Um, Roger Ailes, of course, was uh, the head of Fox News until his death. Uh, Well, until he was pushed out. And so that's why Trump ran. Trump never wanted to win. And in fact, Steve Bannon uh, said in a book called Fire and Fury that Donald Trump looked horrified the night that he won absolutely horrified the night that he won the 2016 election so this is a man who never really wanted to be president he just wanted to you know build his brand off of having run for president and it all went horribly wrong for him most of us
0: yeah i think that's a good place to, to, to yeah i
1: mean to, tra- to start to draw all
0: these threads together. So bottom line, Joe Biden has always wanted to be president and has spent his life building the skills and experiences that he needs to be president. Donald Trump never gave a shit about being president and spent his life making himself unfit for office. And you can take those two points of view and figure out from there who you think is the best person to vote for in this election. If you haven't already cast your ballot, I think that makes it pretty clear.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it really is listening to, to you sort of say the Biden side, and we had talked about this before, and I think that we both knew that it was going to come to this sort of inevitable, con- you know, conclusion that these are two very different men. Um, but listening to these biographies side by side is really striking because you see just how different they are and how different their lives have been. Um you know, from the very beginning, you know Joe Biden comes from like this very working class background that Donald Trump wishes he came from in a way. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's just remarkable that the trajectory of these two men's lives have been. Yet they are sort of unified by a driving ambition from a very early age and from a persistence. You know, both of them are incredibly tenacious. Neither yeah. one of them accepts defeat, and. I, I think that that in and of itself, you know, regardless of what you think of either candidate, it is remarkable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there are as much as as you say, there are some serious differences between the two of them. I think there are some through lines to both of them that are, you know, that have at least, you know, not if not similarities, then kind of echoes of each other. Right. Like, as you say, both of them have been driven by a fierce sense of drive and ambition from a very early age. In in Biden's case, that meant overcoming a lot of obstacles to get where he was. Um, You know, in Trump's case, he didn't have, like any obstacles at all. Um but you know he did have
1: pad were the ones he put in his own way.
0: Yes, exactly. He is his own worst enemies in almost every case. But I think that's the thing. Like that's what's interesting about it, because he could have he could have worked less hard and been more successful is, is kind of my constant thing with Donald Trump. Is that he if he had just taken his money and put it in a savings account, he would be better off today than he is than he is now. Um but he just wanted more. It wasn't just about the money, I think. He wanted, he wanted that shift from, you know, the outer boroughs into Manhattan. He wanted that shift from, like, kind of the, the person everyone doesn't take seriously to the person who's president of the United States. Like, it was, it was a, more than a purely financial ambition, even if it was always kind of a business ambition, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, I mean, Trump's ambition has always been um, social, yeah. And has always been um, about his own sense of greatness. Um, you know, he he was raised to think that he was better than other people. He was raised to think that he was deserving. Um, he was raised to to work hard. I mean, Fred Trump Sr. You know, despite being you know everything that he was, was a hard worker. This was a yeah. man who really. Fred Trump Sr. really was a self made man. Like he inherited his father's business, but it wasn't a very big business, you know, and he worked from the age of 12 at it, you know. So uh, Donald Trump's ambition was really about becoming uh, really, if we want to go back to that sort of sex in the city that we were, I was watching and saw him, and he wanted to be Mr. Big. He wanted yeah. to be the King of New York, you know, yeah. that's what he wanted. And then after he conquered that, he just wanted bigger and bigger. But it was all about his ego. It was never about his bank account because he had the money. He's always had money his entire life.
0: Like he could have lived an easy life if he were willing to live an easy life.
1: Whereas, Whereas he, everything he did was in service to his ego. I mean, and you can see that just in how he splashes his names on the side of his buildings.
0: Yeah. And, and with Biden, the ambition and the drive, which is probably equal in intensity, it's very much about Finding a purpose, you know, he talks a lot about. He talks about it, you know, a lot in the context of work. You know, he says your job is your dignity. It's what gives you purpose. It's what you're, you know, it's it's what 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 drives you through the day. He talks about working class and kind of middle income people, like that, as in like finding work is what gives your life meaning. And he talks a lot about the personal tragedies that he suffered in the same way. He's got a quote where he says, you know. It, when terrible things happen to you, the only thing that can 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 help you get through them is to find some purpose in them, to m- make meaning out of them and turn them into something bigger than what they are and make them about something more than yourself. So I think, you know, that's where the that's where the like equal intensity of ambition just takes a really different inflection. Whereas for Biden, it's about making it bigger than himself. And for Trump, it's about making himself bigger.
1: I think That's a great way of putting it. Um, yeah and you know I think that their own life stories really speak volumes about who these men are um yeah and you know to the core of their character I mean yeah
0: yeah listen Skylar thank you so much for spending this time with me it's been fascinating and very rewarding and um you know I I think I know what I think (laughs) (laughs) and i i will be very i will be keeping my fingers crossed um that on election night we're able to come to any outcome at all (laughs) to be honest but i i really hope that we find the outcome that brings purpose and meaning back to the country instead of just writing trump's name in ever bigger gold lettering
1: (laughs) thank you thank you karen thank you so much
0: And that's it. We will have one more episode of this podcast on Monday before the election. Um, And in that episode, I will run down uh, the current state of the race across all the different dimensions, all the different states, looking at the Senate, etc. Uh, Until then, stay safe, stay sane. Um, I wish you all the best. Uh, As I said before, if you go to my Twitter feed at KarenJR, that's K-A-R-I-N-J-R, you'll be able to find at the top of that in a pinned tweet um, a link to the Discord discussion that we'll be having on election night. Um, I'll keep that uh, page updated with any uh, useful information and relevant tidbits. Uh, In the meantime, make sure you voted. (laughs) If you haven't voted by now, what have you been waiting for? Get those ballots If you've already voted but you haven't yet done so, please verify. Go onto your state election website and double check that your ballot has been received and that it's been accepted. I can tell you that um, I've been desperately uh, checking in with my Board of Elections but had not had confirmation that my ballot was received and accepted until this week. And now I feel amazing. Uh, They received it apparently on the 28th but just hadn't updated their website. So it's worth just continuing to follow up and make sure that that that, uh, ballot does get counted. Uh, I should let you know, as always, this this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me. And I wish you a very happy weekend. Talk to you soon.